This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I was actually, shortly after the accident happened today, I was trying to get up the mountain. And I was on, I was literally on one of the on-ramps, on the Aberdeen on-ramp, when a police cruiser drove up the ramp and stopped us, and we ended up having to back up to Longwood and then turn around, and I finally said, forget it. I'm not going up there because it'll just take me forever to get up and even more time to get down. When we ha- And this is not the first time. When we have an accident in this city, on the highway, on the 403, our city, or at least the western half or third of it, grinds to a halt. And I don't know, I'm trying to figure out as I was sitting in it today for a while, as I was stuck there, and then as I was trying to get around, and then I was trying to drive from the spectator to here at the CHML studio, we are right, in case you don't know, CHML World Headquarters is right across the street from Westdale High School at the corner of Longwood and Main. So I literally can see this building from the spectator and vice versa, and it took me over half an hour to get here because every Side street, every um, every other road, arterial was the word I was looking for. It was coming out as ulterior, but arterial road. Every arterial road was blocked, was completely jammed. There was another accident by the Fortinos because people weren't paying attention, which made it even worse. So I don't know if it's the fact that we have a poorly designed road system that doesn't allow for the amount of traffic that has to be dumped off the highway. I don't know if that's the problem. I don't know if the highway is not designed well enough itself, like if it was wider, if that would help. I don't know if it's just bad drivers. But how is it that an accident on the highway, and granted, it shuts the highway. I, I'm I'm not saying that there would be no impact. If you take all the cars off a major highway, you're going to have impact. It just seems to me that as soon as we have any kind of significant accident on this highway, and it happens with reasonable regularity, happens a couple times or three times a year at least, it's impossible to get anywhere in this city. I can tell you that if you recall, a number of years ago, two years, three years, I can't remember exactly, uh, city council was asking the province to put the money up to widen Red Hill Creek and widen the 403 coming through town for this very reason. We've got more and more and more cars driving through the city, which means we are going to have, by necessity, more accidents. More cars generally means the chances, the odds of an accident are greater. And you have a certain number of accidents. The odd one is going to be serious, unfortunately. But what is it about Hamilton? Why can we not deal with this? Why is this city gridlock whenever there is one significant accident? Because, again, I know the cars all have to come off. Is it the fact that the light system isn't working properly? Is it a, is it a, a, I I don't know. I don't know. But let me go back for a second. And and if you want to have your say on this one, 905-645-3221 or star 9900, if you have a theory on why the city seems to be incapable of handling this. I go back again to what the city council was asking for a couple of years ago, where they want, I think, well, wanted, but I think still want the province to widen the highway. That would be very expensive. We all, we all acknowledge that it would be expensive to do that. I think a couple of years ago, the number that was thrown out 
was like $61 million or something. That's not inexpensive. But when you consider all the other things that we're doing in this city to prepare for the growth of the population that is anticipated to move here and to live here in the, in the future, right? The whole LRT discussion is not about today. The whole LRT discussion is about the future. What are we going to do with all the people who are going to be living in this city down the road? Well, if that's the case, if we're looking at transit and transportation and how to move people around, maybe widening the road, if we're going to have that many people, not only in town, but driving through town is an idea we should have. Would that solve the problem today? I don't know if that would have solved today's problem because today's problem was a police investigation. And so they had the highway blocked off. I don't know if even a wider highway would have resolved this problem, but there are a lot of accidents on the 403 that if it was wider, you would say, you know what? Yeah, we would, we would probably be able to move at least some of the cars by there and alleviate some of the problems that we're having. What do you think is the reason why we can't do this? I mean, is it just, is, is this, do you think this is common? Do you think this happens in every city? See, I don't, if I've been in Waterloo. Waterloo is not utopia, despite what that columnist who came to Hamilton and talked about how horrible Hamilton was, although she seemed to backtrack a little bit. And I love that she came on the show and talked about it, but Waterloo is not utopia. But they seem to handle an accident on their highway going through there on the 401 a little bit better. KG just writes in, and he beat me to the punch on this one because... I was going to say the same thing, but KG just sent an email pointing out. He goes, you think it's busy now with, a, with an accident? Wait till the LRT is in place. Well, we will see what impact that would have on a day like today. The reason I say we will see is because there will still be, generally King is going away from the highway. It's going towards the highway, so you wouldn't have the same off flow that you are right now. But... It's a question. I don't know what happens when you take away one of the main arterial roads in this city that would have, what what kind of an impact that would have on the city. Although it does, I'll be honest, it does give me pause. It does make me think that that will have some kind of a negative impact when that happens. That's going to be a, that's going to be a question for sure. We'll, we'll see what happens when all the construction starts. And we're not getting into a whole LRT discussion. That's not the point of this, but we will see what happens when all the construction starts and there is the first big accident on the 403. It's already difficult to move around. Anyone who's on the road right now listening to me knows how difficult it is to get around. Take away one of the main roads and how much of an impact that has. It's going to be a good question. It's just, it warms my heart to know that, uh, Every major issue in this, every time we have a big issue like the stadium or the Red Hill or now the LRT in this city, that no matter what we're talking about on this station or in the paper, that it can always be brought back to that major issue by somebody. It just, it warms my heart. Well, uh, look, I, I'm not, uh, as I say, the, the LRT thing, as far as I'm concerned, uh, whether you agree or disagree, has essentially, barring something bizarre, has been decided. Well, you it's know, like the stadium. I... I, I take the Beeline bus to work every day, and uh, I pass by a couple of the shops on King Street. One of them says, say no to LRT. It's not decided yet. So, I mean, if I'm to believe that. 
Well, the point, the, the, when I say something bizarre, here's what I think could actually still happen. And I think it's unlikely, but I think it's possible. The liberals lose the next provincial election. I've said this mm-hmm. before on the air. The conservatives get in, look at the books and say what every single party that has taken office, the NDP did it in Alberta. You see it with the liberals in Ottawa. You see it everywhere. A new party gets into office. They look at the books and what's the first thing they say? Oh, things are far worse than we'd let, been led to believe by the previous and the previous finance critic, which our I mean, finance minister. This is far worse. So now we must not follow through with the promises that we made. We can't afford them because we were told one thing, but the books say another, and it's way worse than we expected. And I guarantee you, whoever wins in Ontario, if it's not the Liberals after the next election, is going to say that. I guarantee you that's going to be said. And so when I say, could something bizarre happen? Yes, someone could get into office, liberal, or sorry, conservative or NDP, and say, we just, a billion dollars is just not, we can't afford that. We'll pay the penalty. We'll pay whatever penalty it takes because it'll still be cheaper than throwing a billion dollars into the LRT. Do I expect that? I don't expect that. But would it be the most shocking thing in the world if that happened? I don't think it would be the most shocking thing in the world if that happened. I think it would be entirely within the range of possibilities based on what I think everyone is going to say, whoever gets into office next in Ontario is going to say when they look at the finances. I mean, but we know that's nonsense, right? Like, you're right. Every government says, this is so much worse than we thought. But no, it's not. They know exactly how bad it is when they're coming in. But it's so much easier to say, well, I mean, they were definitely hiding stuff from us. So how could we have prepared for this? Well, no, my point, you're right. They know how bad it is. But you go into office. No one has ever run an election, except for the last time the Tories tried to run in Ontario, (laughs) by saying we're going to cut. Right, And we saw how well that played. When they said, the economy is terrible, we are going to cut 100,000 jobs. They didn't say it directly like that. We're going to get rid of 100,000 jobs. We saw how well that played. That cost the Tories the election, basically. So no one goes in saying they're going to cut. They all promise stuff. And then when they get in, they all say, ooh, worse than we thought. We can't do this. Well, anyway, how do we get on LRT again? The reality is, my point is, I just don't understand how we have a city right now that seems incapable of dealing with the the spin-off of a an accident that for a time closes a highway. There is literally not a street in the west third of this city that is not jammed. Not moving. Impossible to traverse that you you will have people that'll take hours potentially, to get from one place to another in the city because you're just not moving anywhere. Because, And I don't know, I, I'm not prepared to throw it at the feet of the people running the city and say, your plan stinks. I don't know. I don't know that there is a plan. Although, you know what I would like to see? I'll be honest with you. I would, when something like this happens, we have seen that leaving things as they are doesn't work. We have seen that saying, okay, all the traffic is spilling off the highway now. 
leaving things, the traffic lights and everything else exactly as they normally run during a normal day doesn't work. I would love to see the city have a plan in place for the next time that says, you know what, next time the 403 is closed and all this traffic is piling off here, let's either by having cops out there, although that's a lot of manpower, or if there's a possible way to change the lights by computer, because they're all on computer, to turn certain lights to just straight green through or longer greens or whatever else. Let's see if we can actually figure out a way. It's not working now. So if you want to try something else and it doesn't work, you're no further behind. Let's try it. Let's plan for this because we're going to have another one at some point. Let's plan for this and try it. Let's see if between the 403 and James, let's say, that we're going to make Main Street, the green lights all go green for a period of time to allow cars to move along and you know, you have to have the red light every once in a while, but is surely there's got to be a way that we can, with modern technology that we have, there's got to be a way that can make this operate smoother, that makes this city run better when this kind of thing happens. Doesn't there? Doesn't there? I don't know. Maybe I'm dreaming. Maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm imagining something that doesn't exist, a, a utopia world that doesn't exist, but right now... It doesn't work. Believe me, it doesn't work. There are people who are listening to me right now that will still probably be listening to me almost till the end of the show in their car, depending on when the road opens or the roads get cleared up. But man, oh man, what a mess out there today. And again, I want to say, as I wrap this part up, I do recognize and acknowledge and want to make clear the death of a person on the roads is much more tragic than our delay. I'm not trying to diminish or belittle the fact that from what I understand, someone died. All right. That's more important. That's more tragic than our taking too long to get home. But because someone died shouldn't necessarily mean we have to move more slowly or we have to have impossible traffic jams. We don't want the tragedy, but I don't know that the tragedy has to come hand in hand with absolute gridlock. Just a thought. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. My next guest began her career as a star basketball player in high school, right across the street from where I'm sitting now at Westdale High School. She went on to an all-star career at the University of Utah, was drafted in the first round in the WNBA, has had a long professional career in Europe, and for, I think it is, 16 years now has played for Canada internationally on the national senior women's basketball team. She has a career that I would guess if you were to ask every single young girl playing basketball in this city or frankly in Canada, Ask any one of them from the time they're five until the time they're in high school and say, hey, I got an idea for you. How would you like to have that resume? Every single girl playing basketball in this country would say, sign me up. I'm in. That's exactly what I want to have. But last week, Shona Thorburn announced that time has come. She is going to be retiring from the senior national team. She joins us now. Shona, how are you? I'm doing good. Thank you. How are you? I'm, listen, I'm great. It's been roughly a week since you announced your retirement. Are you making your comeback yet? 
<laughs> have no, you reconsidered yet? yet? Um, no, I'm going to pull like a Michael Jordan type thing and take a couple years and then reconsider. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? If you were a boxer, that would be for certain. You'd be back here. Uh, now, if you were a boxer, you'd probably be <laughs> slurring right now. So it's probably better you're not. But there is still time for you to reconsider this, though. I mean, the tryouts aren't for the Olympic team, aren't for another few months. <laughs> uh, there's no reconsideration. There's a lot of time and thought went into this decision, and it's it's a solid uh, decision. How did how did you come to it? Because every athlete, when they get to that point, when they start thinking about it, it's a process of how you finally come to that solid moment when you say, "Yeah, you know what, I'm going to mm-hmm. do it." How did you get there? You know, it 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 took months. It really it took months, and it was a lot of sort of soul searching. It was a lot of. Um, I don't want to say meditation because I'm not meditation, but it was listening to my body, listening to my mind. And, you know, the decision was evident. Um, I, I'm, not at the, I'm not the athlete that I was four, five, six, eight, ten years ago, uh, which is normal. And, and I know that, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. I don't want to say you kind of wake up because it is a process, but you, you know when you know, and at least I get to go out on my own terms. Did it? Did you go back and forth a few times? Oh my gosh, thousands of times, honestly. <laughs> so it one was, morning, it, one morning, it was, it's, I'm done, yeah. and the next morning, oh no, I'm not done. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an emotional roller coaster. And you know, I talked to to sports psych, uh, and you know, people, my, you know, partner, family, friends, uh, coaches, and you know, it's not just a decision that comes easily. Let's put it that way. So. When did you finally come to the decision? Like it, it was announced last week. Mm-hmm. Was it last week when you told them, or had you come to a decision before then? No, I probably knew in about January, or February. Um, I knew personally in January, or February. I didn't. I didn't tell anyone. Um, you know, I when I say I didn't tell anyone, I did not tell a single person. Um, not mom. Not not. Nope. Friends. Not teammates. Nope. Not coach. No, no, really, you know, uh, Kim Smith, Kim Gaucher, her and I have played together for years and years with Canada, you know, four years at Utah together, we both play over in France, we've played together in Spain before, um, she kind of knew, because I kind of threw the idea out to her a few times, so I think she was the only one who I really sort of leaned on and talked to about it, um, but that was it. No one really. But does not so because does not telling anyone in your mind allow you to keep that door open a little bit and convince yourself to talk yourself out of it? Yeah, maybe uh, subconsciously. Now that you can just say it out loud, um, yeah, I think maybe subconsciously that that was a little part of it. Um, I mean, or just coming to terms with it. Mm. You know, it's it's a lot bigger when you finally announce it. Um, than just announcing it to yourself. So it was maybe I just needed, you know, I needed a couple months to sort of buffer my my decision and, and finally tell people. Because when I made the decision on my own, in my head, it wasn't emotional. I mean, it was emotional, but it wasn't. And then when finally, you know, we announced it last week, it it, it was like a flood of emotions. Huh. Yeah, so really, and, and you know, I, I, I mentioned to you last week, if I could, I would play for another 20 years. That's how much I love playing basketball. That's how much I love playing for Canada and want to represent Canada. And if I could, I would, but I know that my time has passed and it's other people's opportunities. And yeah. 
Well, for I mean, for every athlete that I've ever talked to who has retired from their athletic career, it's it's a it's a moment because it mm-hmm. symbolizes in one way the end of an era. It symbolizes yep. the end of a way of life that you've known forever. I mean, you're a very young woman still, but in some <laughs> ways it re- it symbolizes that you're getting older, not, you know, mm-hmm. not old, but older. Mm-hmm. For you, what was the what was the hardest part out of those or some other thing when you sat mm-hmm. down, you okay, what was the tough part for you to wrap your head around? Um I think the toughest part is coming to the realization that I will never get to put on a Canada jersey again mm. and I won't ever be able to go after that like elusive medal at an Olympics. You know, I, I won't have the opportunity and it, it will, yeah, it, it'll be always something that's maybe gnawing at me in this aspect of my life. Will you be able, do you think, to watch the women's team next time they run on the floor for the Olympics? Will that be mm-hmm. easy to do for you? Go, oh, sure, no problem. Or <laughs> will you be sort of peering through your fingers and maybe turning the channel because it's really hard to watch them yeah. play? Um, I'm not going to lie. I think it'll be very hard. But on the other hand, I will 100% watch because I do feel like I am a part of Canada basketball, retired uh, or still playing. I still, I still believe that I'm a part of Canada basketball. I will always be a part of it. And uh, I want to watch. I want to support them. I want to. I want to be their biggest fan. You know, when I wrote the girls who are all you know heading into training camp. Well, they were heading into training camp when I told them. I said, you know, I'm going to be your biggest supporter and your biggest fan. And that's and that's the truth. And I want to advocate for basketball. And I, you know, I, you know, when I told Canada Basketball and the directors and whatnot, I said, you know, anything you need me to do, I will do for you guys because I want Canada to be better. Do you remember the first game you played for Canada? The first time you oh, wore a maple leaf? The first one, yeah. Because that I would do, not um, have been the senior team, right? That would have no, been a, no, no, an no. age group team. It was a young, it was an age group team. I don't even know what they called it at the time. Um, yeah, I absolutely do. We had about a week's training camp. It was open tryout, then a week training camp, and then we went all the way to Russia. We went to Moscow for the like youth games or something like that. And it was an international competition. Yeah, I, I absolutely remember. And how did it go? I'm not sure we won a game. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, you know, it's so funny that you talk, you say that. And, I mean, I did not know that was the answer you were going to say. But <laughs> there was, and you, when you and I talked, I wrote a piece, and people can see it. It's at thespec.com still about this. Um, when you were coming in to the national program and into Basketball Canada, period, mm-hmm. uh, the women's basketball program, I'm trying to think of the nicest possible way to say mm-hmm. this, was weak. Fair? Yeah. A fair statement? Fair fair word to choose? Yeah. It I, was, I think that's accurate. Um, and it's changed. Like, things have changed dramatically in the decade and a half that you've been yeah. involved. From when you joined, there wasn't a lot of star power there, and now it's a pretty darn good team. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's you know, it's, it's apple and oranges, the way the program has changed. And you want to say... It, you know, for a decade and a half. That's a pretty long time, but it's not really to change a program in sports. You had to change the whole mentality and how basketball is viewed and women playing basketball, you know, young girls. That, that's enormous for that to happen in Canada. Honestly, it really is. And 
you know, you have to keep in mind, okay, maybe we're not, you know, a top powerhouse in, in basketball right now, but we're comparing ourselves to countries that have larger populations. They have money that just pours into basketball because they're basketball countries. And we're still, you know, not necessarily beating these teams or, or you know, we, we're competing against them now, though. And I, and I think that shows a lot for what we have done, you know, the players, the organization, and all the feeder systems as well. What, what has changed then? What's the reason that it's changed? Mm-hmm. Other than the impact of Shona Thorburn? <laughs> um, obviously money, funding. Uh, Canada Basketball received a lot more funding. They fought. They got sponsorships. They, they put that into giving us more opportunity to train together, to have exhibition games. And it's a direct impact of of our performance now how much time we get to spend together you know you're comparing canada to countries the meddling countries at the olympics for example all have professional leagues in their country we don't have a professional league so we only get to get together four months a year and train and then go for exhibition games where these girls have been growing up in the feeder systems, and then they play professionally together. Not all of them, you know, but you you play professionally with two or three of your teammates, you're going to have a connection when you come around to the national team. So we're competing with countries like that. But you you said the other day that one of the things that surprised you, and it surprised me when you said this, was that you, because of the way things have changed, when you didn't win a medal in mm-hmm. Rio in the last Olympics, mm-hmm there was a huge level of disappointment, which is different from just being happy to be there. You, you, yeah. It sounds like you really expected that you guys were going to win a medal. Yeah, I did. Um, you know, I, I'm 100%, I thought, I thought we, we could, have an, could have had an opportunity to medal. Um, unfortunately, we, we had a, a very bad game at the worst time you can possibly have a bad game. And that's, uh, the beauty and the disaster of sport. Sure. Um, so yeah, we were we were disappointed. We were shocked. Um, and you know, with me retiring, that was one of the hardest decisions in my retirement. Knowing that we could have, we didn't. But you also, you know, I know I can't stick around for four more years. So. How, how long did it take to get over that? If you really believed that you mm-hmm. were supposed to, or going to, or maybe mm-hmm. should have won a medal. Yeah. How long did it take to, or did you, like, is it a week? Is it a few days yeah. to say, okay, whatever? Or does it take longer to get over that disappointment? Um, I'm not over it. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm absolutely not over it. And, and you know, talking to people, uh, I think it's something that will always hurt a little. Um, you just kind of have to learn to deal with it. I, th- I think that's what it is. And I think that's the reason why it is so hard for, for some athletes to retire because you you always think you didn't achieve what you wanted to achieve. Did you know yeah. going into those Olympics that that was going to be your last huge international event? Mm-hmm. Um, I guessed. <laughs> suspected. Yeah, I suspected. Uh, I didn't know. I, uh, you know, I didn't really announce it, but uh, yeah. Uh, you know what? And... and this is what we're talking about, medals. If, if we had medals, it would have been a lot easier for me to... I, I could have announced my retirement in September. <laughs> um, but we didn't. So you kind of hold on and you see how you're doing. You see how the body is doing, the direction Canada basketball is going. And that's what took a little bit longer to announce and make my decision, to be honest. 
Well, you know, I, I, what I really find interesting in this is, and I've had uh, Melissa Tancredi on this program a mm-hmm. number of times, the women's basketball program in this country in a lot of ways mirrors the women's soccer program in that yeah. 10 years ago, there was not one person on yeah. either team that anybody other than the die hardest of the die hard supporters would have known. Yeah. And now there's probably six or seven soccer players on Canada's women's national soccer program whose names are familiar to people. And I would say the same with the national basketball team. And that's Mm -hmm. that's an enormous change. Yeah, that's an enormous change. It's an enormous feat. Um, And I think that shows how much we have improved and we garner national attention now. Uh, And it wasn't hard to do. Trust me, there was a lot of hard work that went into that. So in my opinion, it's completely deserved. Um, And I think the attention, it helps us. It brings in money. It brings in sponsors. And and it's going to be the way of the future. Who's sadder about this decision you've made, though? You or your family? (laughs) Because I'm guessing parents are like, oh, what am I going to do with my time now? Now I can't travel. I can't go anywhere. I got to take regular vacations. Yeah. I think it's a toss-up. Um, I, you know, I know they're happy for me and they support me and they understand. And uh, but it was, a, you know, as much as I went on this amazing ride, they were right there along with me. So they got to enjoy every moment of joy, and they unfortunately got to experience every moment of heartache. <laughs> <laughs> where, where did basketball take you, though? Because you you started by saying your first one was in Russia, and we know you've been to Rio and London for the Olympics. Yeah. What, so, what are some of the other places wow. that you would have never got to if it wasn't for basketball? Um, oh, my gosh. I Honestly, all over the world. I, I, I don't even know where to start. You know, you can say a, a hungry... Turkey, I probably would have visited Turkey on vacation. But uh, I'm, I'm not kidding you, all over the world. You, we went to destinations that you wouldn't even think about going on vacation. You really wouldn't. My, my passport is covered. Like, you know. That's very that's cool. That's a great thing. That's no, very, that, no, that's very, very cool. We just have a minute or so left here. I, I did want to ask you this. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody who has watched basketball with you playing over the last number of years know that your nickname is Showtime, S-H-O <laughs> time. Where did that, who, who gave it? Where did that one first pop up? Who gave that to yeah, me? Yeah, do you know you when that started? for the spectator. Did it, well, it came from the spec, but it wasn't me. No, it was, uh, what's his name? Jeff. Jeff Dickens? Yes. Jeff he, Dickens. He passed away. He did, long time ago, yes. but Jeff was the one who gave you that. Yes. And was that yeah, when, when you heard that, high school. and when you got that nickname, was that like, yeah, that's a good nickname, or are you thinking, oh no, why couldn't he give me something else? No, it was awesome. Are you kidding me? That's, no, that's followed me for life now. Um, um, yeah, no, I appreciate his uh, creativity on that one. It, no, it's awesome. Big props to him. But, and so, so you were cool with that nickname. You never said, hey, you know what, let's work on something else. Like, did you ever have any <laughs> other nickname? Did anyone else, did you ever have any other nicknames on the team? No, not one. <laughs> the, your teammates never gave you a different nickname? Nope. It was always Showtime. Yeah, show or Showtime, yep. You lucked out. I did, I did. Because <laughs> I know a lot of other athletes who, boy, mm-hmm. they may have one for public, but they've got other ones in private. <laughs> no, 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 trust me, no, no private nicknames. <laughs> so what do you do now as we, as we let you go? Because every athlete who retires has to find something else. Are you going to become like a competitive mm-hmm. triathlete or competitive bridge player or go into, <laughs> I don't know, you got to do something. What are you going to do with your time? Um, I'm fortunate that, you know, I, I still plan on playing over in Europe. So I just signed one more year on my, my club team that I've been with for three years in France now. So I'm going back there for a year. 
Uh, and this summer, I'm actually working for FIBA, and I'm doing color commentary. So FIBA is, you know, the national governing body for uh, basketball, and I'm doing commentary for them. So Excellent. I hope it, it turns into something a little bigger in the future, and it's, you know, it's a stepping stone. You ever given any thought when I brought you in here, when I introduced you just at the top here and pointed mm-hmm. out that your resume, that every single young female <laughs> basketball player in Canada would kill yeah. to looking forward to say, if I could do that, that would be amazing. Do you ever yeah. think about the fact that like you are the, and I'm not trying to embarrass you, but you are the envy of literally like tens of thousands of girls who wish they could have and could mm-hmm. have the life that you've had. You know what? I People paved the way before I came along. You know, there was Canadians playing over in Europe and, and I've been incredibly fortunate. And anyone who loves basketball and is ready to make a commitment and follow in my footsteps I 100% would tell you to do it, and and if anyone wants to hit me up and needs some advice, I, I will help you because it has been an absolutely amazing life. Um, a lot of sacrifices, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of sacrifices and an intense amount of hard work that goes into it, but I wouldn't have traded for anything. Shona Thorburn, uh, congratulations on the retirement. Always appreciate you thank doing you. this, and uh, we will chat with you soon, hopefully. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Scott. That is uh, Shona Thorburn. As I say, one of the most decorated athletes ever from Hamilton who is retiring from international basketball. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. So last week, this story came up, that the Toronto District School Board is trying to shut down Wi-Fi in the schools to do a couple things, to get students off their phones, to get them to stop using up all the bandwidth, to get them to stop using social media a little bit, to interact as an actual human to other humans. Well, I'm not sure if it's working, but a lot of people are thinking it's a start. But it, of course, leads to a far broader question about whether or not schools should even be having cell phones. What rules should schools be having in place? Should cell phones be allowed in the classroom at all? Should teachers confiscate them when they walk in the door? What should be happening for our best possible education, considering almost every student now has a phone and often has it with them? Dr. Thierry Carcenti is a professor at the University of Montreal. He's the He holds the Canadian Research Chair on Information and Communication Technologies in Education. He joins me now. Dr. Carcenti, thanks for doing this tonight. Pleasure. Now, I don't know what your stance on this is. I'm going to find out in just a second. But I applaud the Toronto School Board for trying to do something to resolve this problem. You agree with that or or is this not good enough or not a start or what? Well, I agree with the idea of doing something about cell phones, but I don't think it's a good idea. Most of the kids, they have smartphones, and they don't need the, the high school uh, Wi-Fi to get connected to social media, Facebook, Snapchat, and, and you name it. So I think we need to educate kids to show them exactly when is it okay to be texting and being on social media, and when is it time to pay attention to what the teachers are saying in class. Okay, and... I, that I agree with because the Wi-Fi thing is sort of, I agree with you, is wishful thinking because if the Wi-Fi exactly. goes off, you just use your phone. I mean, big deal. That's not the end of the world. You just use up a little bit of data. Um, but I don't, am I being old fashioned though if I say that it seems that phones in classroom are can or are a major distraction for a lot of kids? It's a major distraction. Could you, I mean, it's hard to picture, but the study we did 
We have kids texting each other. We have kids looking at social media, Instagram. Uh, how many people like the picture I did put this morning? Facebook and Snapchat. <laughs> Just to name a few. All that and paying attention to what the teacher is saying in front of the class is very is a is a great challenge when you're 13 or 14. It's almost impossible. So that's why I say it, it's it's not going to work. To work, it's wishful thinking to try to ban cell phones. But trying to get the kids to be born responsible, and nobody's teaching them to be responsible. The only thing we're telling them is it's not allowed. Uh, they should be uh, they should be banned, and so on. Why not start, you know, uh, you know, educating kids? And uh, as if you look after high school, what are people doing in restaurants and you know other places? They're texting and you know in front of each other and all that. So I, I think we should start even in elementary school, you know, to, to show kids what what is a good use of a cell phone or any other you know text uh, tool. Do you believe that a high school student could be? taught to the point where they can have the discipline to put the phone away and not be distracted by it? I think it's a, it's a great challenge. I think we need to start there. I think there are other methods as well. Uh, we've seen teachers use cell phones as a tool in the classroom, a tool they ask questions and kids answer uh, using a variety of websites with their cell phones. Uh, kids are looking for information with their cell phones. So Teachers can engage kids with uh, their cell phone, but the, the problem is uh, with cell phones is it's very tempting for kids. So it's, it's yeah. almost impossible for them not to be tempted. Now there are ways uh, you could ask the students to put their cell phones, you know, flip them down on top of the, their desk and pay attention for some time. And maybe when it's time to use it for educational purposes, then they can use it. I think you need school rules, and you also need classroom rules. But teachers, they need to engage students. If students are engaged in the classrooms we've observed, well, kids are not using cell phones because they don't have time. They're engaged after something. Hmm. And teachers are sitting at the back of the class so they can really watch what students are doing. They can't sit anymore in the front of the class. It's not going to work. It's interesting. A good teacher might be able to defeat the cell phone, which it would have you'd have to be a, re- a really good teacher, though, to be more interesting for a lot of kids than the cell phone. And you have to be good at all the time because whenever you you stop being good, you know that's it. They're all you know whenever they have the chance, they're going to take their cell phone and look at social media. You just have to picture yourself. You know, you're 14. You have lots of you know messages on Facebook. What are you going to do? Pay attention to math or pay attention to what's going on on social media? It's, it's tempting for kids. For well, sure it is. And I, I I'm guessing based on your background and your research that you probably saw this thing that was on 60 Minutes a few year a few weeks ago. Uh, Anderson Cooper, they've done, they did a, a, a test with him and it was talking about how the phone place the phone companies the the phone manufacturers are building apps and things to basically to rewire our brains. And one of the tricks they did on him is as he was hooked up to this brain scan thing so they could measure brain waves, the, the researcher, without telling him, was outside the door sending him text messages on his phone. And every time he heard his phone bing or heard it buzz, not realizing that this was the actual experiment, his brain waves went bzzz. And the point is, you put your phone, even if you're a disciplined high school student, you put your phone even face down on your desk, but it goes bzzz. And the point was in this experiment, we are so rewired now that that distracts us. And now we go, oh, it's like Pavlovian. I have to know what just happened on my phone. I have to see that message. It's hard. It's really hard. That's why good teachers, what they ask students to do, they don't want to hear phones at all. You know, it's complete silence in the class for some time. And then maybe at times they want students to use them, you know, uh, 
to to actually complete the you know tasks that they're doing in class. But if you give them a you know if you you can't trust them, it's really really difficult. But you have to make them responsible at the same time, because eventually what we've seen we've seen uh, grade ten, grade eleven students who are you know who are becoming responsible because the rules are interesting. Uh, the cell phones are sometimes used for educational purposes and. They've been sensitized to, you know, good users and bad users of cell phones uh, within school context. What would be the downside, if there is one, of a teacher putting a rule in place that says, when you walk into my classroom, here's a bucket, you dump your phone into the bucket and it's going to stay by the door and you can pick it up on the way out and therefore you can't have it with you while you're in the classroom. What would be wrong with that? Well, it's a strategy that we observe, but it's time consuming. It takes like five minutes at the beginning of the class and then another five or sometimes 10 minutes at the end of class for everybody to pick up their cell phone. Now, putting it on the desk, you know, upside down uh, without any sound, it's a strategy that that seems to work. And that strategy allows teachers to use it as a a tool as well in the class. There are many websites which use uh, cell phones to search for information, to interact with students and all that. So it, it's an interesting learning tool as well. And I, I don't think school are using it enough as a learning tool. Are teacher in this country, are your teachers allowed to remove a phone from somebody? Is that even legal? It's a very tricky question. And I know some schools sometimes they give up because, you know, they, they'll confiscate a cell phone and the parents will call and I'll sue you and so on. <laughs> well, it's, 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 what do you want to do? You know, it's like, but, but again, you know, when there are rules, I think one of the problems as well is that schools are not involving parents enough in those rules. We should involve both students and parents and teachers as well. Everybody should be involved in those, uh, you know, in those rules. Uh, parents have to do some work at home as well. You know, they, they can't complain when school confiscates a, a cell phone. Well, if the student is not supposed to be texting in class and he did, well, you know, there should be a, there should be a consequence there. Yeah, but it's so funny because, right, every parent wants their kid to do well in school and expects the teacher to teach their kid properly. But then if the teacher says, well, I can't teach your kid properly because he's on his cell phone, there will be parents, as you say, who will call up and complain about it. It seems so opposite of what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, we surveyed more than 4,000 students, 4,390, and 93% of them had a smartphone. It's it's so tempting for them. They, they, they were showing me, you know, Instagram Snapchat, Facebook, and text messages on top of that. So they're they're really overwhelmed without even you know learning math. You know, it's just like just with the social media and the text messages and all that. So it's a it's a tough task for them. So we we have to everybody has to be involved to make sure that students eventually learn to be more responsible and eventually become more responsible. But it's a, it's a great challenge. But the simple ban or, or like the remote, you know, Wi-Fi thing is wishful thinking, as you said before. It's never going to work. There was a time, and I, I'm not sure how old you are. I, I know that when I was in school, it was before, when I was in high school, it was before smartphones. And we used to hand, hand notes to people back and forth or whatever. Is texting on your smartphone really any different from writing a note and passing it to someone in class? You know, we, we asked that question, uh, and a girl said to me, you know, uh, my, you know, I used to be good with notes in elementary school. It took me half an hour to reach four or five friends. <laughs> now with myself, when I can reach a thousand, you know, friends in three seconds. So it's, it's, a, it's a different ballgame, you know, with the cell phone. You, you can't compare to, you know, to passing notes around. It's, it's really something else. And it's not only notes, it's videos, it's pictures, it's a... Uh, it's multimedia, it's a, so, so, which is why it's, it's, a, it's a powerful learning tool, but it's got a dark side to it. And again, just the simple band 
never works. All the school was surveyed. The, the cell phones are banned there, but everybody had the all the students had one. So and, and the cell phones were banned. So it shows that it doesn't work. We always hear the the phrase multitasking, and this usually comes up when we have, you know, I can do my homework, I can listen to the teacher, and if I send a text or if I look at Facebook for a moment, I'm just multitasking. Is there any evidence that humans can truly do two things at once properly? We, We tested that as well, and the only conclusion we came up with is that students become better at multitasking. But they're never better when they do only, like, they're really good when they do only one thing at a time. But if you practice multitasking, you'll be better at multitasking, but that's it. You're never better than doing one thing at a time. So doing too many things at a time, it's not going to work. So cell phone is not a good thing. But in class, I guess, you could use it at times. But the the great teachers that we saw, you know, they really uh, engage students. They walk around because they don't sit if they said students are going, going to be texting or doing other things. They ask students to put their cell phones down. That's the only way we can be really sure that, you know, they see the cell phones, they sit on top of the desk, and they don't hear them. That's a, that's a good thing. And students, they, they kind of learn, you know, to be patient and not to look at their cell phone over time. The other thing that the Toronto School Board said with this, as well as not driving teachers crazy and allowing students to pay attention, is they were hoping uh, that part of this, if you have the phones off, again with Wi-Fi, again wishful thinking, I understand, but they were hoping that what this was going to do was require students to actually interact with people as people, as with human to human as opposed to standing two feet away and texting them. You may have to look them in the eye and talk to them as a person. Is there? Do you think that could work? Well, what what we've observed in the schools, and and again, we surveyed a lot of students. They do talk to each other, and they talk about the text messaging, the pictures they saw on Instagram, the the the, the video they saw on YouTube, and so on. So they still talk to each other, but they talk to each other while you know playing with their cell phone at the same time. So it's it's complex, but it's untrue that many people believe that kids are alone in their own world with their smartphone. Who's more alone? And, you know, someone reading a book on. Uh, on the subway or a kid with a cell phone, you know, texting to, uh, you know, uh, 10 or 15 or 20 friends. So it's it's a complex thing, but I don't think they're, they're really alone. I, I do think they do interact. The only thing is that they can't stop using it, and that that's really the problem. And if they use, they're using a cell phone in class, they're not going to get good grades. They're not going to learn eventually. So they, they really have to... Uh, to understand that, and and when there's a ban or where, when there's a rule, it's really for their own benefit, and students don't understand, don't realize that. So fruitless bans, they, they don't work. But eventually, you have to make students more responsible. I, I we just have a minute or two left here. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like listening to you that. We're never going to get rid of this. We're never going to completely solve this. So probably the answer then is be a good teacher and incorporate the cell phone into your teaching. And then people, then the kids will feel like it, the teaching is fun. If you, if you can, if all my work is dumped on my phone or a bunch of it, if I have to use my phone as part of the classroom experience, you can, I mean, am I reading that right then? That that could be a way? Exactly. If what you're saying in class, kids can find it on Wikipedia or YouTube. Well, of course, they're going to be doing something else. But if they're really engaged in problem solving, they have to, you know, do complex tasks in class. Well, maybe they're going to be more engaged eventually. Some of them will still be texting, but then, but then again, it, it'll be a lot better. And eventually, uh, you know, most of the kids in class will be learning, and that's that's what you want. So, teachers, especially with cell phones and technology, they have to engage students. And I think it's the, probably the key 
to, uh, to, to cell phone problem or challenge that we have. Dr. Thierry Carcenti, the Canadian Research Chair on Information and Communication Technologies and Education. Really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks to you. Uh, I st- he is he is the guy. He is the lead guy in Canada on this, and I hear exactly what he's saying, that if you are a teacher and if you can't get students off their phone, make your teaching use the phone. That there is a lot of sense in that. There is a lot of logic in that. If you have tried everything possible to take students away from the device and you can't do it, it's a losing battle that they are addicted, that they, whatever the word is, then if you can incorporate that into your teaching, maybe you can then win that fight. And I get that. That that is an interesting concept, and I, I I understand the logic behind that. I still think, and maybe I'm old fashioned, maybe I'm wrong, that if I was a teacher, if I'm teaching high school, my classroom is going to have a bucket by the front door, and as you walk into the classroom, you're going to dump your phone in there, and you're not going to have it with you. Now, Dr. Carcenti might argue, as would the sixty minutes piece that I'm talking about, and if you can find that one, it was it was truly one of the most fascinating things that I've seen on TV in a long, long time. Because again, it was Anderson Cooper who was the person doing it. He he thought because he had these brain scan, you know, the electrodes to his brain, and you can see the electrical currents and the the thing on the computer. And he thought he was doing something on the computer, not realizing the experiment was going on peripherally. And it was involving him with the cell phone that he was not able to answer because it was out of his reach, but he heard it buzzing. Maybe, maybe my answer to this problem wouldn't work because the kids then, if they don't have their cell phone near them, all they're thinking about is, oh, geez, I wonder what's going on on my cell phone. Which is probably no better than having the cell phone right there. If you're so distracted by what am I missing, maybe it's no better, but. Who knows? It is, uh, it is one of those ones that if you are a teacher, it's one of those issues that if you're a teacher and you can figure out a way to harness the attention that is given to the cell phone and get it into your class, like I suppose if you use his, Dr. Carcenti's theory and his idea, if you, instead of, well, you could still write up on the chalkboard or on the smart board or whatever you've got now, but Every student could then put the answer into their smartphone and text it to the teachers. Maybe that's how you do it. Maybe you engage the smartphone technology to your advantage. It's an interesting concept. Had not thought of that. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.